So I must say, um, last week, we were a little bit lackluster. So let's see if we can get it a little better this week. So this week, in celebration of Halloween, we are going to be talking about hell! I think that's odd. Actually, I think it really needs dramatic music. Ba ba ba. Okay, so let's try this again. So, this week we're going to be talking about hell. Ba ba ba. Perfect. Perfect. I uh, I love it. So, if you were here last week, you'll remember we were looking at the Hebrew Bible and this idea of this place called Sheol, um, this murky underworld kind of place, kind of like Hades. It's not that pleasant, but it's not torturous. Uh, it's not like some people get sent there as a punishment. It's just in the Hebrew Bible imagination where everybody goes when they die, and so that's the idea of Sheol. And as we talked about last week, it doesn't really hold up in the face of this idea of evil um, because, you know, if you have Genghis Khan right next to Gandhi, we have an issue going on. It doesn't really, we've lost any sense of fairness with it. And so just lumping everybody together in one place, in this case, Sheol, has some issues. And so that passage we looked at last week, Prophet Isaiah, that was about 700 years or so before where we are today. So that's a long time. And over that long time, people were wrestling with this very idea that we talked about last week, this problem of evil and finding the pro- the, that Sheol is just not up to the task of making sense of the problem of evil. And so over these 700 years, the Israelites came into contact with a whole bunch of different cultures and a whole bunch of different ideas about what there might be after death. And, and out of all of this theological reflection came this belief in heaven and hell. Uh, so now, first of all, <clears throat> this idea that you have in your mind uh, of heaven and hell that we've gotten from our culture is really a mashup of Dante's Inferno from the Divine Comedy and John Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, and those two books have influenced how we think about what hell is in the West. Uh, and notice, neither one of those two is the Bible. Interesting. Um, and uh, neither of these two are within a thousand plus years of the Bible. And over that thousand plus years, there's been plenty of development and growing this tradition to make it more complicated and more fleshed out and expanding on what the Bible actually has to say. And so for today, let's uh, start by taking a look at what is actually in the Bible, and then we'll do some thinking through how helpful or not that is for us. Um, So let's take a look at the New Testament, but even that statement gets complicated really quick. Because, right, so the New Testament has 27 different books in it, uh, various different authors, but exactly zero of the books in the New Testament have a systematic understanding of hell. Rather, we have a couple phrases in this book. We have a sentence over here. We have a couple different paragraphs here. We got a sentence sprinkled there. You know, it's basically just kind of makeshift, and it's not very developed anywhere. It's not like they were sitting down and like, I'm going to write a treatise for these people 2,000 years later to read about heaven and hell. It just came up in the course of their stories or their arguments or whatever, and they put in the parts that they needed. And so we've got a sentence here and a sentence there and whatnot. And so it's not as developed as, say, Dante's Inferno. 
But one thing we can look at is this word for hell. So everybody remember, uh, so what language is the New Testament written in? Greek, excellent. And so if you go into the Greek text in the New Testament and you look where, where the English word hell is, we have this word in Greek called Gehenna. That's the Greek word for hell. And it just so happens that Gehenna isn't just a word. It's a very real physical place. Um, like, it's a, it, so it's this valley outside of, we call it Valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem. And like, you, standing on Temple Mount, you can see it because it's like right next to you. It's right outside of Jerusalem. This is a very real place. And it's this very real place that has a history and one heck of a history at that. So back in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible times, it's this, it was infamous as a cultic site for worship and especially a place burning your children as sacrifices to the gods. So it's that kind of place. Real cheery kind of vibes going on around it. Um, and then the Babylonians came in later and destroyed the, the Israelites and destroyed Jerusalem. And where do you know, where do you think they dumped all the bodies that they slaughtered into? Gehenna. And uh, so nobody really liked it anymore. I don't know why. Um, but they didn't, they weren't really a fan of it. So we got these nicknames like the Accursed Valley or um, the Abyss. Uh, and for centuries, they, they just used this place as a rubbish heap because you don't want to use it for anything else. It's horrible. And so obviously, you can't just pile up garbage over centuries. That would be ridiculous, right? Um, so you've got to burn it. And so it's burning all the time. Are you picking up where I'm going here? Do I need to be more explicit? Okay. All right. So it's burning all the time and never goes out. And then let's add to that that the prophet Jeremiah goes and talks about Gehenna as this place where God would cast all of the dead bodies of the enemies of God. And that they will be, or Isaiah who's saying that all of those enemies of God will be burned in that valley in final judgment. Or that the Maccabees in between the two testaments actually burned all the enemies in that valley. And so gradually... We've got ourselves this trash dump that's built up around this really nasty site, and now it's become a crematorium for basically all of the enemies of God, where God's enemies will face their final judgment and slaughter. And so gradually, Gehenna stops becoming just this vile physical place, and it becomes hell itself. Not just the physical valley itself, but like, the idea of Gehenna expands to include, to become the underworld. So one thing to notice about this, this is very culturally specific, is it not? It's very much rooted in that particular time and place for understanding what Gehenna is, right? We don't understand what Gehenna is just coming to it. We have to learn all about it. Whereas for them... They knew all about it. So, for example, if I were talking to you guys and was like, oh, my gosh, Pulte Road, am I right? It's the worst. If I went and talked to Bayview about that, what all would they get out of that? Nada. They wouldn't get anything because 
They don't live right next to Pulte Road. They don't know everything that's going on there and all the horrible child slaughtering that happens out there, apparently. Um, right? So, <laughs> it's not a perfect analogy. Give me a break. Okay. Um, but it's culturally specific, right? It's, there's this thing that the Jews at the time, living in Jerusalem especially, they, there's these, all these associations that come up just from that word Gehenna that, remember, is the word for hell, and so one of the things that this makes me think of is maybe the culturally specific place Gehenna is not nearly as important as the message that the writers and that Jesus is trying to get across to us that's underlying this imagery that it's using. And so Gehenna is the trapping for what the story is trying to make the readers understand. So, which is, for example, this story we read today, it talks about hell, Gehenna, and, but what is it try, really trying to get us to understand? It's not trying to get us to understand hell. It's trying to get us to understand, say, what you do does matter. And there are things that you can do to prevent yourself from moral or ethical failings, but they require sacrifice. But the sacrifice is worth it. And especially with, note the discussion at the beginning um, that we said about the little children, especially sacrifice is worth it if your actions are exploiting the vulnerable. Stopping that is makes a difference. Right? That seems to me to be the the current, the message that's underlying the whole thing, and how does Mark get it across, is using this image from their time and place of Gehenna, this burning, trash heap, crematorium, ugly kind of place that's right next door. And so it's just packaged in this way that they could understand a whole lot better than we could. So if the packaging as I propose, is less important to maintain intact than kind of the core of what's going on, the, 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 the real message of what's going on and what the authors are trying to communicate to us by talking about Gehenna. Are there more productive ways to conceptualize hell for us modern U.S. 21st century folk rather than this valley of burning garbage and corpses. So for me, um, one of the most helpful discussions I've heard has been from C.S. Lewis, so uh, famously the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, but also a, a large, very popular selection of theological works. And when he talks about hell, <clears throat> he uses entirely other imagery to describe it. So for him, the afterlife, uh, in the afterlife, just like in our current life, we continue to make a choice of whether or not to live in relationship with God or outside of relationship with God. And so if we want, we can always draw nearer to God. And we can always be closer in relationship to God, and that relationship blossoms. And obviously for him, that's a good thing. And for C.S. Lewis, as this is an ongoing relationship, you always are in the process of making this decision to move closer to God. It's actually very Methodist of this idea of sanctification, of you are always moving closer to God. Um, and so one of the implications of that is there's not necessarily a reason you need to have this artificial cutoff point of 
death as the time where it decides whether or not you move closer to God. So you could always choose to move closer to God or further from God. And so um, it seems out of character to me for having this cutoff point. It seems out of character for God to say, well, you want to be in close relationship with me, but sorry, you know, you missed the deadline. Kind of sucks to be you. Uh, uh, you want to have a lot to do with me, but, uh, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Seems a little strange for that, that being how God would function, because what is heaven? What is heaven? Way more helpful than thinking of pearly gates and fluffy white clouds and harps, so many harps, uh, is heaven is this perfect relationship with God. It's being in this unified state with God, this one with God together. And so God is not going to force us to be in a relationship that we don't want to be with God. Because, like, what is God's character? God is a lover, a faithful lover, pursuing us and luring us into an ever closer relationship, wooing us, if you will. God will not be deterred in God's purposes to set creation, including humanity and individual humans. God won't be deterred in working to set creation right, to fix the brokenness. But God does also respect our autonomy because love and relationship requires autonomy. It requires you to be able to choose to be in relationship with somebody. By definition, it has to be, or else it's not actually love. It's not an actual relationship if you're coercing somebody into it. And so, if a human were to steadfastly resist God, to steadfastly resist God's attempts to restore God's broken relationship with the human then God's not going to just overpower them and say, well, I tried it the nice way, but now I'm going to have to force you to be in heaven. You don't have any say in it, right? God's not going to do that. God respects our agency and dignity. That's the way God set the whole thing up. And so for C.S. Lewis, hell is the choice to not be with God. You're not being actively barbecued on a spit in the middle of the earth for C.S. Lewis, right? You're choosing to not be with God, which would also, incidentally, happen to be a miserable existence. And so, if you want, God will grant your wish and finally leave you alone. And so, you're alone with whatever demons and baggage you carry with you to live like that forever, unless... Um, unless but, God, but God is always ready to take you back. And... But God also utterly respects your agency because that's what's needed to move into a loving relationship. So, to our, to our topic today for hell, if somebody were unrepentantly evil, determined to not be in a relationship with God, then they would by definition be not in, quote-unquote, heaven, which is perfect relationship with God. And so regardless of whether or not there's this eternal torture kind of place, they would be in what we could call hell. They would be in not heaven, if you will. And so there's two directions you could go from it from here. So on one hand, 
One option would be, we could imagine that there are some people who would just perpetually, steadfastly resist God's attempts to lure them in, to, to woo them, if you will. And so they just never want to be in a relationship with God. So then for them, I guess hell would be an eternal place, unless in some act of compassion God like ended their existence so that they didn't have to live like that forever. So that's one option, that there are people who exist out side of heaven. On the other hand, another possibility is that God might be able to be insistent enough and persuasive enough and and wooing enough that even if it takes a long time, everybody might eventually be won over. In which case, if everybody were in relationship with God, everybody would be in heaven and functionally there'd be no such thing as hell, which is not heaven. Right? So I guess, in short, for me, not having something other than heaven, that is perfect relationship with God, would be not honoring the dignity and autonomy and free will that humanity has to choose whether or not to love, whether or not to be in relationship. And so for me, what the New Testament's talking about when it's talking about Gehenna, when it's talking about this fiery valley of rubbish and burning bodies, it's rooted in their historical context. It's this very particular image to convey values to them. And so it's trying to tell us something about what God values and how we should live as well as we can. And so I don't personally see all that much need to keep those particular trappings of that particular image of fires that burn forever and gnashing of teeth and worms and all this stuff when I think about hell. And so I think C.S. Lewis's vision of hell is really helpful, really quite helpful. It does, at least to my tastes, deal with the problem of evil because humans are choosing how they interact with God, whether or not they be in relationship with God. Um... It does allow for the possibility for people to always change their mind without some sort of arbitrary cutoff date when you die. So in my mind, at least, there, there has to be some, some sort of hell, or at least some sort of not heaven, to deal with the problem of absolute evil. We don't necessarily have to use the same imagery as the fiery valley of Gehenna that the New Testament draws on, but... There has to be some sort of break between God as the absolute good and those who are just evil and being able to take seriously the evil that exists in the world. So this week, as with last week, may you continue to ponder what you believe about hell. Does this, does what you believe or what you don't believe adequately deal with this problem of evil? just like last week. But also, does it adequately deal with the agency required for an individual to enter into relationship with God and relationship with another to choose to be in relationship or to choose not to be? This week, may you consider these questions. May it be so.